the thing about self-compassion is you can hold whatever experience. So for instance, let's say you're totally numb and shut down because you're in shock. You can have hold that with some kindness. Yeah, kind of sucks to be numb and shut down, but you don't have to like go straight to the like the grief. Right. You can hold with kindness and warmth the numbness that means that's protecting you from feeling the grief. But then you're still in the game, so to speak. So it's really about holding whatever is arising in your awareness, whether it's intense emotion, whether it's numbness, whether it's shutdownness. friends. My name is Lisa Kiefhofer, and I am honored to share that I am the creator and host of this show. And I can't believe I get to say this today, but welcome to season three of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. For my longtime listeners, welcome back. Thanks so much for your ongoing support through downloads, leaving ratings and writing reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for the notes that you sent me at Reimagining Grief on my socials. And of course, Those of you who choose to sport the GSB t-shirt, I see you. If you're new to the show, you may wonder why I created a show like this, a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. And I totally get that. When I was launching the show back in 2019, more than a few people in my life said, wait, you're going to do what? But since you're tuning in, I don't think you'll be surprised to know that it has struck a chord. I mean, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I'm no exception, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. I also spent a career as a social worker, as a narrative therapist, and now as founder of Reimagining Grief. And I just kept seeing how grief illiterate we were, and frankly are, and the harm that was causing all of us. So through this show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. So before I bring you today's conversation on self-compassion and grief with the incomparable Dr. Kristen Neff, I want to take a minute to tell you about Recalibrate, a company whose mission alignment with my work at Reimagining Grief is so off the charts that I had to be a part of their work too. And I'm grateful to say Recalibrate loves the mission of this show, so they're sponsoring today's episode. Recalibrate provides workplace mental wellness that empowers mental and emotional learning, focusing on really three important things. Science over stigma. It's science-backed education to normalize and destigmatize mental health conversations. Two, they offer relatable application, translating concepts to real-life scenarios. And they provide everyday tools that are realistic to busy lives. And frankly, we can all use that. One of the most popular workshops they offer right now is a Healthy Minds workshop on stress, burnout, and COVID change, especially timely with October's World Mental Health Day around the corner. I'd love for you to visit RecalibrateMind.com to learn more about services. Don't worry, I'll also drop the link in the show notes for today's episode. In today's episode, I'm thrilled to share a conversation I had recently with Dr. Kristen Neff. Her research and insights on self-compassion have served me so profoundly in my personal and professional grief work. I tried my best to keep my cool and not be too much of a groupie nerd, but I don't know how well I succeeded at that. For those of you who don't know her already, during Kristen's last year of graduate school, she became interested in Buddhism and has been practicing meditation in the insight meditation tradition ever since. And while doing her postdoctoral work, she decided to conduct research on self-compassion, a central construct in Buddhist psychology, and one that had not yet been examined empirically. Kristen is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, creating a scale to measure the construct almost 20 years ago. She is the author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and most recently released her new book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. Can't wait to bring you our conversation today.
I am so thrilled to welcome Kristen Neff to the show today. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm so unbelievably honored to have you. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Thanks for joining me. I'm sure happy to be here. So for folks who've been listening to the show over the last few years, they know that I'm always curious to begin these conversations around what your earliest memory of grief was in your growing up life, not necessarily death loss. And in particular, how would you begin to think about what you witnessed, explicit or implicit in the grief that you observed, particularly in the behaviors of the adults in your life and what you think that taught you kind of about what grief should you know, look and feel like? Yeah, so I didn't have a lot of grief experiences. I suppose my, my, my mother's mother was the first person who passed. Um, and that was the slightly unusual experience because she was mentally ill for many years. And so she was in a home and we weren't that connected with her. And so when she passed, there wasn't really a funeral or it, it was just kind of, it was a, it was like a non-event, you might say. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that taught me. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it was just, but I think in many ways, my mother was kind of relieved because she was mentally ill. Um, Her father had died before I was born. And then when my father's parents passed, I wasn't close to them at all. So again, it was kind of almost a a non-event. So I haven't even been to that many funerals in my life. It's interesting. Just a few, a few friends. I mean, I've been to a few, but it's, it's interesting how some people's lives it it I'm sure but it's coming up I mean because a lot of the people I love that are very close to me are like in their 80s so I'm like preparing yeah 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 Um, at least that type of grief I know there are many different types of grief there are grief from death grief from loss when I've had more of the grief from loss you might say but yeah yeah I know you shared a little bit like divorce or even just you know the discoveries you had around your son. And one of the things that I hear you saying, even in the story of your mom, is that maybe there was some ambiguous loss that she experienced, even though her mom was still alive, but she wasn't maybe the kind of mom that she had a hope for. And that's a really important loss. I think we don't give enough voice to, you know, that we can grieve even when someone's alive. I mean, yeah, I think I've had much more ambiguous loss. People that grandparents or even my father who, you know, there's grief about them not being what you hope they'd be. Um, as opposed to losing what they actually were. So it's a different type. And in many ways, it's more challenging, right? Because it's just not black and white. Yeah. Yeah. That ambiguous loss, you know, Pauline Boss, among others, of course, you know, helped us really start to understand that. And of course, I think in this time of the pandemic, more and more of us are really understanding the complexity of ambiguous loss because we don't have the sort of clarity, the ceremony, the rituals and the ways that we might if we had experienced a death loss of someone or a pet. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I also think even when I started getting to know your work, so for those of you who don't know, which by the way, where have you been? Kristen Neff, expert in self-compassion, has some incredible books out there. I was telling her if this was a video podcast, I would say my copy is dog-eared and sticky-noted and well-worn, but I've gotten to know your work over time, including some presentations you've given, some talks, TED Talks and others. But even thinking about the kinds of ways in which your experiences around, I know that you've shared around divorce and around Mm -hmm. the diagnosis of your son with autism, Mm -hmm. even those ways in which we have expectations about how our lives and the world should be, and then they don't turn out to be, those are those same kind of ambiguous losses. So I'm, I'm imagining maybe it sounds like those were some of the most prescient or informative experiences of loss you had so far in your life, it sounds like, or? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, grief more broadly defined is part of our almost everyday life. Yeah. I mean, grief that we thought we took the vaccine and we thought it was done and now we find out it's not. I mean, just to take an example, there's, you know, it's like constantly, it's really the pain of things not being as we wish they were is, you know, part of the everyday fabric of life. And it's interesting because believe it or not, there hasn't been that much research on self-compassion and grief. I'm Mm. not sure why there's been a couple studies because it's essential to be able to process any sort of grief, whether it's the grief, the loss of a loved one or the grief of, you know, your child being diagnosed with something or any sort of hardship. It's really the most skillful and effective way and helpful way that we can hold pain. Yeah. Grief is really pain. That's what it is. 
Absolutely. Well, this is maybe the beginning of my foray into research in that area because I've been, self-compassion honestly has been the thing that has allowed me to not just survive, but I would say to thrive in the wake of the loss of my husband and then my friend Mm -hmm. and to raise our daughter and Mm -hmm. teach her those lessons. And I really appreciate the way you are reminding us about the sort of everyday nature of grief, the broad expanse. So I share sometimes that my definition of grief or the metaphor that I use comes from kind of my narrative background because we are storytellers. We, we, mm-hmm. we have stories we tell. So our lives are built by millions of experiences and our identity is formed by the stories that we tell in a death mm-hmm. loss or a catastrophic event or yeah. any kind of major shift like that is akin to the manuscript of our life being torn to shreds and handed yes. back to us with no instructions on how to rewrite or live our lives. And the pain, dysregulation, the distress that we experience is trying to navigate a world without a story. And the work, you know, I use that word loosely, the work of grief, I think, which has to fundamentally include self-compassion, is beginning to sort of rewrite a new narrative and to sort of live into a new story. And I think, of course, we experience that when we have a death loss or a global pandemic, let's say. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we experience it in little mini ways all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder, I'm I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head right now, but so one of my main practices the last few years has been the ability to be with uncertainty of not knowing, you know, and it's, and I don't know how, how the stories play into that. I mean, stories may be really necessary in terms of making sense of things and making meaning. And I think that's really, really useful. And I think it depends where you are what you're dealing with and what you have the resources for. But there's also, I think, something useful in not having meaning and like allowing things to be just unknown. I don't know what it means. Yeah. I don't know what this says in terms of the arc of the story of my life, where it's been, where it's going. Yeah. What if the arc of the story of my life is just an illusion? <laughs> you know, you can start getting into... All that. And and I think for me personally, one of the ways self-compassion really helps is to kind of hold the mess and uncertainty of it all and and to be okay. And well, sometimes things don't make sense. Yeah. Because there's there's such a drive for things to make meaning and to make sense. I think it's neurobiologically sort of wired, right, for our safety, but it also is culturally embedded in everything, particularly, I mean, I have audiences around the world, but particularly when you think about the U.S. capitalistic, productive, binary culture we live in, it's like we have to have an answer. But I, I appreciate what you said about that maybe the work that we might all be working towards is to find some space to sit in that unknown to kind of sit in that ambiguity, even as one of my guests said, to sit in the suck, which I thought was yeah. a, or the, sh- the shreds, the shreds, right? Just <laughs> sit shreds, in that yeah. because mm-hmm. I think the beauty of it, and this might be, of course, you know, eventually there might be some meaning made, but mm-hmm. I think when we pause in that place, instead of hurrying into making up a story, right? When we pause in that space before the story, then we give ourselves chances for to offer some self-compassion, but also to not continue on with stories that aren't helpful anymore or that don't serve us. You know, it gives you a pause right. to sort of think about like, how might I choose a different path or reconnect with this core sense of value that I've lost or that space gives us something, I think. Yeah, it certainly is the practice though. I mean, and, and I think working with grief is, well, you know, obviously I, I come from the Buddhist tradition and that's, as considered the highest form of practice, that dealing with death and that kind of real existential understanding that, well, first of all, we're all going to die. Every yeah. single thing, including the universe, is going to end. Yeah. And the courage to look at that and to kind of be open to it is, with many people say, the most powerful form of practice. Absolutely. And it is practice. I appreciate so much in your work and obviously just your approach is just reminding us that, that there, because back to that sort of binary assumption that there isn't like, we don't get just good at it and we just don't magically show up in the world, like doing it differently. It takes a kind of attention and intention setting and practice to do that. And I do think I say often, my listeners will know they've, they've heard me say this before is I think when you can sit with that, the reality of everything's going to die. We're all going to die. The universe is going to die. And you kind of hold space for that. Again, you pause in the kind of revelation of that. I've experienced personally, and I know this to be true for the people that I've served. 
I have a way of accessing joy and delight and amazement in ways that I don't think I did before I really began this practice Mm. caused mostly by the death of my husband, but also even just my own curiosity and growth, right? Is it doesn't just come magically. It takes practice. Yeah. And a letting go. That's the other main thing in my practice is letting go. And, and in a way with grief, well, you have no choice but to let go. You can try. You can try not to let go, but good luck with that one. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. there's you, you're you're forced in a way. You almost are no other circumstance to let go because you you do have so few options. I mean, some people give it a good old fashioned try and they may yeah. become depressed or whatever. Yeah, and I think it's harder with an ambiguous loss to let go because yeah. there's always that hope or whatever. But with an actual clear cut death. And you have no choice but to let go. There is some freedom in that. I think there's this interesting nuance, you know, over the years, sort of grief theorists, of course, have evolved. But one of the things that I've I've been really grappling with over the course of my work with this and my own grief and professionally too, is thinking about how we let go, but grab hold in a way, because our relationships, the people in our lives, we impact each other all the time, right? We are, Mm -hmm. as you know, from your work in compassion and self-compassion, it's a very, Mm -hmm. we're intertwined whether we want to be or not. So I think there's some ways in which not at a binary ceremonial way that we eventually begin to let go, but we are transforming that connection into some other way of being, how we show up in the world, how we carry their memory forward. So it's, I think it's a little fluid, but it does mean we can't sit in that place in our story. Letting go, it's not like a, I have something I've let go. It's not like linear. It's, it's again, it's a way of approaching each moment of doing what you can with, it's really letting go of attachment to outcomes or even attachment to knowledge. It's really letting go, you know, this is the Buddhist in me, but letting go of attachment, which means you're still fully engaged. You're still fully present. As a matter of fact, you're more engaged and more present. Because you're not down the road into that story of the future, right? Yeah, or how things should be or how things are supposed to be or the way things you want them to be. Yeah. So I, and I write about this in, in my latest book, Fear Self-Compassion. You know, my, my practice has really evolved over the years. And now I don't even know what I'm letting go of. I mean, quite literally. Yeah. Because working simultaneously with letting go of the need to know and understand with letting go. So I, it's almost like an energetic letting go. I, I feel the tension of somewhere I'm holding on to something. Yeah. And I practice letting go of it. And I, I, I quite literally don't even know what I'm letting go of. It's, it's really interesting. It's, it's not for everyone. And this is like after 20 years of therapy. I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly a place for meaning making and all that. But at some level, you get to the point where the whole goal is just to be present with the arising of each moment knowing we have no control yet no control does not mean complacency we do everything that we can to help do good work in the world to fight injustice whatever it is at the same time that the mindset is non-attachment to the illusion that we have control because of course it's a complete illusion when we come back Kristen helps us understand what it means to choose our relationship with our thoughts and emotions. And she offers us some really practical suggestions along the way. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. How I understood what you were just saying is we can prevent our thoughts and feelings from coming up, but we can kind of change the relationship Exactly. That we have with them. And so often, you know, as a narrative therapist, I would I would invite my clients to sort of imagine the emotion that they were dealing with sitting in the chair across from them. And we would do like some little role play conversations like uh-huh. that emotion isn't you. You're in a relationship with that thought or that emotion. What do you want to say? What do you want to is, is right. it OK if I read a little passage from self-compassion in your earlier sure. work? Because I wanted to this one is underlying flag dog aired. I've reread it so many times and I just love for you to tell us a little bit more about what might this look like in practice. Maybe we could Mm -hmm. do that. So from Kristen's book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, which if you don't already own it, do yourself a favor and buy it and maybe a copy for a friend. You say thoughts and feelings arise based on our history, our past experiences and associations, our hard wiring, our hormonal cycle, our physical comfort level, our cultural conditioning, our previous thoughts and feelings, and numerous other factors. 
as discussed in the last chapter, there are untold prior causes and conditions that have come together to produce our current mental and emotional experience, conditions beyond our conscious choosing. And this is where I think it, I really want folks to listen and to really take hold. We can't control which thoughts and emotions pass through the gates of awareness and which do not. If our particular thoughts and feelings aren't healthy, we can't make these mental experiences go away. However, we can change the way we relate to them. When you were writing that and you, if you were imagining that you are encountering someone who's maybe deep in their acute grief or has not come to, has not maybe been in therapy or hasn't really explored what it means to have a, to choose a relationship with their thoughts or emotions, how would you even begin to invite somebody? What would that look like? How would you explain that? Yeah. So for me, it come back to some very simple metaphors each time. And that the, the easiest metaphor is that of friendship, right? Of, of kindness. Just imagine that you had a good friend who said, I'm, you know, I'm just overwhelmed or I'm confused or I'm angry or whatever it is. And you just really care about that friend. Hopefully some people try to like sort their friend out, but hopefully if you can just be loving and kind to your friend and validate that I'm so sorry, I'm here for you. What do I need? Right. If you can be that way with yourself. So, and that's the relationship I'm talking about. It's the warmth. It's really the warmth. It's the warmth and the space. And that's why there's three components of self-compassion. There's mindfulness, which is the awareness, making the space for those emotions and thoughts to come up. There's the warmth of the kindness, giving yourself some, um, just allowing yourself to be moved. Wow, that's really hard. Oh, you know, or just kind of, or it may be a whole, or it might be like, hey, I'm here for you. What can I do to help? It may be more of a supported energy. And then the third one being the connection to others. When you realize I'm not in control, it's not me. It's not, first of all, it's not just me. This is a human condition. If you take that to its logical conclusion, that's kind of gets to that interdependence of all the prior causes and conditions. So if you just hold whatever arises in that space of compassion, listen, you don't control it. I'll usually you will find it, it starts changing because the way you're holding those thoughts and emotions impacts what those, how the, they manifest. So yeah. usually not always, but often they start to come down a little bit. They aren't so overwhelming. They might make a little more sense. They might, again, if you don't exacerbate them by fighting them or resisting them or avoiding them, they, they tend to pass more quickly. Which is, I think, an illusion we all have that somehow if we just avoid them, they're going to disappear somehow, right? That's all of our secret, secret hope. Right, right. And of course, the research is pretty clear. It actually makes it worse. Opposite. Yeah, yeah. 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 I wish it worked. I I, I would, hey, go for it. Good luck with that one. Let us know how it did, but it just, it doesn't. That's the thing. It's, It's a pretty, whether you're talking about research or just wisdom, we know that it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I think we've all tried it many times and I think we could use our own, we could do our own research on ourselves That's and know right. that it didn't. Yeah, I use the metaphor often for people to help them understand. I say, imagine that you're inviting your emotions over for a cup of coffee and they yeah. just want to be heard and borne witness to. And if you don't let them in, they're just going to be standing at your door, looming in the front window, waiting for you That's to right. come out. Right. And if you let them in, they're not going to unpack their bags you know, and stay like your mother-in-law did or whatever. They're going to come and visit and go and then they'll probably come back again. But Chris Germer and I in the Mindful Self-Compassion also have a metaphor with that because, you know, there's this great roomy poem, The Guest House. And invite them in, let them like sweep up your furniture. And it's like, no, well, you don't have to be that extreme either. In other words, sometimes you can say, okay, come in the foyer. I'm really not ready for you to use the bathroom yet. I don't feel comfortable (laughs) with that. Stay in the foyer. Okay. You know, you can go in stages. You want to keep yourself safe. And, you know, I think we also have to honor our desire to avoid difficult emotions or to shut down, to numb out, to not process, because we're just trying to stay safe. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of, you just kind of go with the, at the level that you feel comfortable with. Some people go too far the other extreme and just say, let it all in. And that's not really safe either, right? You no. got to go with the level that you learn the most when you're challenged, but once you get into overwhelm, you actually, it stops being helpful. So, you know, and where you are challenged versus safe versus overwhelmed, that's going to be different for each person, you know. And each, and over time, it's going to be different. And over time, yeah. So, for instance, when you first have a big loss, maybe you just need to shut down and go numb for a while just to like go to work or whatever. And that's totally, the only thing is you want to do it consciously. We we talk about it as conscious opening and closing. So if you do it unconsciously, I'm just like, think about it, I'm just going to drink or whatever, then, then you can't ever return to it. 
But if it's like, okay, I got a function, I can't deal with this right now, but I'm doing it consciously, then when you're ready, you can start to process it and start to open up at, at the pace that works for you. If you never open up, you don't even know where it's there, then that's going to come back to haunt you. Yeah. But you don't have to go the other extreme either. It's You can really use wisdom to do it in a way that works for you. I want to talk with you next maybe about the kind of physical impact of self-compassion because I always say that if you don't open up to grief, grief will knock down your door one way or another. But to do it consciously at your own pace, I also think shock is a blessing that our bodies gave us so that we cannot, we aren't capable of processing the incomprehensible, yeah. comprehending it all at once. We have to do it in these little yeah. ways that allow our nervous system to not just be literally so activated that we can't really... Yeah, you can't drive your car. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And and you certainly wouldn't be in a space to sort of have that kind of loving, kind self-talk that's so critical to accompany you as you open into these kind of really heavy, right. difficult... But what's interesting is you can actually, the thing about self-compassion is you can hold whatever experience. So for instance, let's say you're totally numb and shut down because you're in shock. You can have hold that with some kindness. Yeah, kind of sucks to be numb and shut down, but thank you for helping me. You know, so in other words, you could even, you don't have to like go straight to the like the grief, right? You can hold with kindness and warmth the numbness that means that's protecting you from feeling the grief. And then, yeah. but then you're still in the game, so to speak. So it's really about holding whatever is arising in your awareness, whether it's intense emotion, whether it's numbness, whether it's shutdownness. And, you know, again, the three components, mindfulness, okay, I, I feel, okay, I'm, I'm numb, I can't feel, so, but you're aware of it. Yeah. Oh, that's, you know, kind. Well, you know, thank, thank you for protecting me. It, it kind of hurts, but, you know, it's okay. And I'll, you know, try to be kind to myself in the midst of my numbness. And then the common humanity, this is what happens with people when they, there's grief. You know what I mean? So you can hold that with self-compassion if that's where you are. And it's not like one place is better than another. But what's really most important is you have the door of compassion open as much as possible, even if that's open to, to be shut down. Exactly. It was kind of ironic, but that's that's really what it is. Yeah, I've definitely used that. way of relating to any moment of experience. I cannot tell you how many times over the years when I've gone in different phases of numbness, when, you know, secondary losses to my yeah. loss of my husband or even then losing, being, I was with yeah. both my husband and my friend when they died, I was holding both of them. And mm-hmm. when new losses come, I've done that so many times, especially I think in my numbness to just say like, I've almost hugged myself and said like, thank you body for protecting me. Yes. You know, like, and yeah. just done that real kind of gentle, I'm not that I haven't been self-critical and because I am a human in this culture, but I've yeah. used that tool a lot yeah. over time to really, I'm try. I've been working for a decade or two, I would say, to talk to myself. As you know, you talk a lot about how would you talk to a friend? I always mm-hmm. remind myself, would you talk to your friend with that mouth? That's what I say all the time yeah. to people, uh-huh. right? And I try to talk yeah. to myself in the ways in which I know to be true that I'm capable of holding space and bearing witness for other people. I try to do that. I appreciate that reminder that that practice of self-compassion, of mindfulness, of understanding our shared humanity, of offering ourselves self-kindness is just as important in our numbness as it is in our full expanse of our emotional experience. I recently came across the talk you gave and you were talking, I think maybe at the time it was early research, but or maybe it was someone else's research, but I thought it was particularly interesting around what we're learning about the physical impact of self-compassion. And I bring Mm -hmm. that up so often because one of the many myths I'm trying to demystify through my work at Reimagining Grief and and the show is that we don't experience grief from the neck up, just in our thought emotion space. And that there's so much of our, you know, the biology and the physiology that we experience from inflammation to heart to, you know, exhaustion, fatigue, et cetera. What do we, Mm -hmm. what do we know? What are we learning about the impact of self-compassion practice and the physical impact that has. Right. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's oversimplified that it basically activates the parasympathetic nervous system. So if the sympathetic response, that's the fight, flight, or freeze response. And, you know, when that's turned on ourselves, we fight ourselves, we criticize ourselves, or we, we flee from others, metaphorically in the sense of shame, we hang our heads in shame, or we freeze and we get stuck. 
right? And so what self-compassion does is it reduces sympathetic activity. For instance, it lowers cortisol, it reduces inflammation, and it increases things like heart rate variability, which kind of allows us to be more flexible. So it, it actually literally helps us calm down and be more flexible as we respond, as we respond moment to moment. It does things like increase enhanced immune function, helps you sleep. And of course, your sleep is so linked to your well-being as well. So it's even linked to things like fewer aches and pains and colds because, again, the mind and body are related. So the more your your mind is relating in a healthy way, the more sleep you get and the more your better your body functions. And I imagine almost sort of self-fulfilling that cycle too. And then the more space and patience and grace you have to give yourself self-compassion. Yes, and grace then, and- then, you, then you don't get into those downward spirals. You're beating yourself up for beating yourself up and for being tired and it just goes on and keeps on getting worse. Yeah, Shaming yeah. yourself or shaming yourself. I mean, we're yeah. just crazy. Aren't yeah. we just the... Yeah. We've developed some odd expertises in our lives and our culture, right, around shame. Well, speaking of shame, I think I heard you once say self-compassion as an antidote to shame because so often, of course, when I'm working and talking with people in grief, particularly if there was some kind of death loss or an accident or yes. some involvement, shame, it becomes, or people are feel relieved that the person died and then they feel shame. So shame, it feels like it swirls in the space of grief so often. So what do we know yeah. is the relationship between self-compassion and, and shame, and maybe even a little shame versus guilt, you know, sort of a la Brene Brown. Yeah, a lot of researchers yeah. talked about shame versus guilt. Believe it or not, there's some overlap between shame and guilt. So shame is self-focused. I am bad because this happened. Guilt is I did something bad. So guilt is focused on the behavior. Shame is focused on the self. And there is some overlap. But statistically, you can actually control for one or the other. And when you do that, what you find is that self-compassion is negatively linked to shame, but actually is a small positive link to guilt. And people, some people that confuses people, but guilt can actually be healthy, shame-free guilt. Yes. Guilt is not helpful when it's tinged with shame and therefore I'm a bad person. And, but when it's like, wow, I did something really bad and I really need to apologize and correct that, that can actually be healthy. Right. And self-compassion gives us the ability to own up to what we've done and to apologize and you know try to make reparations. But it's negatively linked to shame because if you think of, you know, what, what the absence of self-compassion is, again, it's just so in my model, it, that means self-judgment, a sense of isolation, and a sense of over-identification when you kind of really just, you kind of get lost in the dramatic storyline of what's happening. That is what shame is, yeah. right? You identify, it's me. It means that I'm horrible. You feel like- I'm the I'm only uni- one in the world. You're uniquely flawed, right? And you're very judgmental and harsh. And so self-compassion- by its very nature, reduces shame. And again, it goes back to sort of giving us space to then attend to the things, to the emotions, maybe even to the guilt, to the lessons, to how we might show up in the world. Yeah, that's right. And so even though it's called self-compassion, a lot of people think that means like some of my Buddhist friends, like, isn't self the problem? So the word, the word self is there, but actually self-compassion reduces the sense of separate self. You could also just call it inner compassion. Right. In other words, it's not you, it's that this human experience, which much of which we don't have control. You know, you can take responsibility for your part in it, but you don't have to identify with it as you somehow being fatally flawed. It allows you to take things less personally, which is one of the reasons it's so helpful psychologically, because it's when we take things personally and identify with them and what does this mean about me and all that, that's when things get really sticky. We get really reactive. Yes, we do. Yeah. 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 I have a teenager. I know about reactivity right now. I've got myself, I know about And myself, well, I know? mean, I meant the dynamic between me and my <laughs> Even teenager. in your 50s, you know, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's just well, biological as well, but. Right. Well, something you just said really resonated for me, and I hear this a lot. So, so many people that I'm working with, and I actually work with physicians and healthcare workers and social workers who are kind of always in that space of being the care providers or the deliverers of compassion, if you were. I'm curious to know, I think we have this myth that we somehow can have an endless capacity for compassion for others and that offering ourselves compassion, inner compassion, self-compassion, however you want to talk about it, is somehow a zero-sum game. Right. Yeah. If I give compassion to myself, it takes away from, yeah, and it doesn't work that way because of course the more compassion flows inward, the more it flows outward. 
But there's also a lot of misunderstandings about like, like the term compassion fatigue. I mean, it's, it's pointing to a very real phenomenon, which is caregivers get burnt out from all the giving, but it's actually not the feeling of compassion that's draining. Compassion is actually a rewarding emotion. Yeah. It's the empathy when you feel the emotions of others. Well, for, some of it's just the stress, right? So yeah. some of that's just plain old stress and overwhelm. But there's also this other element of empathic distress. So when you're around death or you, when you're around people in pain, especially if you're a sensitive person, you're actually feeling their pain in your mirror neurons. And that's actually what's so draining. Feelings of compassion, like they know in fMRIs, are actually, it's actually rewarding. It feels good to feel loving and connected. Yeah. And again, the more compassion you give inward, the more you're able to sustain giving it outward. But it's, some people say you have to have self-compassion before you have compassion for others. That's actually not true. Actually, I would say most people are in the situation where they're genuinely compassionate and kind to others and they treat themselves like crap. Yeah. You know, exactly. but what happens is that you, you get drained when you do that, when you give and you give and you don't replenish yourself and you don't give yourself compassion for some of the challenges of being a caregiver, then you get drained and depleted. So self-compassion allows you not to burn out so you can resource yourself so that actually enhances your ability to continue to give. Right. So back to that sort of notion that this isn't a zero sum game, that it can That's be. That's right. Absolutely. It's, it's it, additive. Ever exponentially expanding. That's so, right. So how do you think about the interventions around, and maybe this is beyond what your focus is, but when you're making that distinction between sort of compassion fatigue and the empathetic distress, what does someone who's experiencing that empathetic distress, are the tools of self-compassion the same resource they would use when you were experiencing that empathetic distress? Yeah, we've, we've actually developed, a, we have research on under a program called Self-Compassion for Healthcare Communities. And it's a short, brief self-compassion training program for caregivers, professional or you can also do it for people who are caregivers in their personal life. Yeah, so, so we teach a practice, for instance, where you use the breath. I mean, if you don't breathe in and out, you're going to die. I mean, just quite literally. So you actually use the breath as a metaphorical vehicle for compassion that on each in-breath, you imagine you're breathing in compassion for yourself, you're validating your own distress, you're giving yourself kindness and warmth. But as you breathe out, you're breathing out for the person you're caring for. You actually can do that at the bedside. Hospice workers, for instance, use it. Mm -hmm. Or anyone, any, any sort of stressful caregiving interaction, it's a way to remind yourself that you need to give compassion inward and also outward. So, I mean, sometimes you need to focus mainly on yourself, but yeah. you, you know, if you just focus on yourself, well, then you aren't being a caregiver, right? Yeah. So, and you kind and you of stop breathing. Whatever, yeah. yeah. It's whatever balance you need in the moment. It's really, we have really good data on it in terms of reducing burnout, reducing stress, reducing depression, increasing what's called compassion satisfaction, because there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from compassion and giving and mm. helping. But if you're so drained and burned out, you can't connect with that. Yeah. Um, but self-compassion actually helps you connect with that. Yeah. I use that breathing in and breathing out compassion a lot in my work and for my own personal experience with grief and I can just well I can a, imagine working I, with people with grief and if you're a sensitive person you're feeling that and you're in pain, mm -hmm. cent pain centers of your brain yeah absolutely yeah. so I use it for my own self but I also use it in guidance with folks who are experiencing some high levels of grief or you know they're mm -hmm. one of many family members who are grieving yes. a loss because we we absorb kind of what's around us. is well, yeah, our, our brain is designed that way. The brain evolved primarily because infants don't have language yet. And so those parents who are more able to feel the emotions of their infants before they could speak passed on their genes to the other generations. So we're by nature, by design, very empathic. When people say feeling your vibes, yeah. it's not like metaphysical. No, this is the way the brain is designed pre-verbally to pick up on the emotions of others because of its survival value. So... Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Is that sort of self-compassion for personal distress? That's what you're talking about when you're talking about with empathetic. Is that the same? Yeah, personal dis empathic distress. I mean, yeah, it depends on the terminology, but the pain that comes from feeling other people's pain. 
the yeah. pain you take on. So validating that is real pain, important pain, pain that needs to be attended to alongside the pain of the other. Some people think, well, who am I? You know, yeah, it's stressful, but this poor person's dying of cancer, you know? Right. So they kind of invalidate their own pain. But if you do that, especially if you're a professional, like caregiver day after day, then you're not going to be able to care for that patient with cancer anymore because you're going to be so drained and depleted. You're so, drained and depleted and you're also isolating yourself and getting further away from this true notion of our shared humanity, sort of, right? And here's the other thing, and I found this with my son all the time, I like to talk about this a lot, that uh, empathic resonance goes both ways. So whoever you're caring for is picking up on your inner emotional state through their mirror neurons. And so if your inner emotional state is burnt out and frustrated or full of shame and blame and guilt, that's what the other person is picking up on. But if your internal mental state is full of compassion, this is hard, you know, kind of like patience, kindness, warmth, that's what the other person is picking up on. And so with my son, Rowan, you know, so autistic kids have a hard time perspective taking, but they actually are pretty emotionally attuned, That's almost oversensitive, which is partly why they withdraw into themselves. So he was always very attuned to my emotions that I would actually regulate him by regulating myself. So if he had a big tantrum, for instance, I would give myself compassion for how overwhelming and distressing it was that he was having this big tantrum. I would calm myself down and that would help him calm down. So it's almost like, you know, they've got secondary traumatic stress, but there's also like secondary compassion. Yeah. So I quote, quite literally, it's not selfish because you are bringing in your mind state into every single interaction you have throughout the day. The more kind you are internally, the more you're able to give that kindness to others through the process of their mirror neurons. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Kristen helps us understand our nervous system response, unpacks what it means to ruminate in loss, and informs us how self-compassion can help us heal. One of the most useful tools I've developed both in my own grief journey and in the work I do supporting others are mindfulness practices that focus on normalizing grief, offering grace and kindness to our emotional and embodied experiences of grief, and reminding us we're not alone in this. If you're looking for a guide to help you discover how to bring more mindfulness and self-compassion to your grief, I'd be honored to support and accompany you. I offer individual and group services tailored to grievers of all kinds. You can learn more about this by visiting www.reimagininggrief.com. There are so many parents, you know, whether it's widows and widowers or folks who've lost a kid and they're trying to figure out how it is they show up and hold, they think the need to sort of hold away their own emotional life or their kind of their own process in mm -hmm. secret. And to just recognize that until you're attending to and offering yourself self-compassion, loving kindness for the struggle, the suffering that you're experiencing, if you're feeling resentful, irritated, burnt out, you know, then you're passing, you're kind of doing the opposite of what your intention was. So don't judge yourself yes. for that. And remember yeah. that the investment, giving yourself that space to offer yourself self-compassion is a gift to your kids. I know we could go on forever, but there's one last, I know you have places to be and I'm just so grateful for this conversation. There's, there's one other thing I know you've talked about I'm sure in your work, I know I remember reading about it in the book that I think is another facet of grief. I think for so many people, you know, we have a sort of over pathologizing, in my opinion, mm -hmm. idea of grief. And, you know, I think there's too quick a notion that we can jump to that people are in chronic grief or, you know, they're stuck in their grief. People ask me that all the time. Why is so-and-so stuck in their grief? Which I think we take that's because we have the patience of a gnat. I think we're like, yeah. okay, it's it's been a month. Are so, you over it already? But one of the yeah. things you talk about and the use of self-compassion that I think is important, whether you're earlier in your grief, longer, farther down the path, whether you're identifying or not as stuck in your grief, is the notion of rumination. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about rumination? How, what do we know about it? And what does self-compassion and, and the research tell us about what it does for us and how do we... How do we cut it out, really, I think is the question, maybe. 
Yeah, yeah. So rumination is, it comes from, you know, the ruminant cacao chewing its cud, but you just over and over you chew on the same emotion or the same thought. And it actually is a safety behavior. It's kind of like that freeze response. Mm. It's almost as if we just think that if we just work it through, and, and sometimes you may be ruminating and sometimes a solution pops up. So occasionally it works, but more often than not, you know, you just go around and around in your head with something. Um, and it just makes it worse and it, you lose all perspective because your awareness is completely absorbed by that repetitive thought or emotion. And it, rumination is directly tied to both anxiety and depression. Anxiety is ruminating on worries. Depression is ruminating on the past, you know, what went wrong or regret. Um, and so it's it's really one of the proximal causes of things like depression and uh, anxiety. And one of the one of the research shows quite clearly is one of the main things self-compassion does is reduce rumination. So partly because we aren't so identified personally with our thoughts, that helps. So the mindfulness really helps. Mindfulness reduces rumination. Uh, the warmth helps reduce rumination because what happens is when we give ourselves warmth and when we feel connected and remember aren't alone, we aren't alone, we're less afraid. I mean, quite literally, it reduces our sympathetic nervous system response. So we're less afraid and that feeling of safety and that lessening of the fear actually allows us to be less stuck as well. Because partly what's keeping us stuck is the fear, right? So the safer we feel, the warmer we feel, the more flexible we are, the more perspective we have the less we stop to judge ourselves or shame ourselves, that also gives us perspective, which allows us to unstick ourselves. But that's really one of the main things, best things self-compassion does is reduce rumination. Yeah. And kind of getting us out of that sympathetic state where our, you know, good part of our brain that helps us think logically and process is offline because- We want it to be offline because that's the survival nature, but. Well, and and another thing, because we aren't used to giving ourselves compassion. And by the way, you know, the reason it's kind of difficult is that self-compassion, I don't think is an evolved state. Compassion for others is what evolved because this is like the caregiving system, the attachment system. For us personally, threat defense is the more natural response, actually, because I'm scared I need to survive. So what we're doing is we're like, we're doing a little hack. We're treating ourselves because we have this this prefrontal cortex, the ability to perspective take. We're treating ourselves the way we might more instinctually treat a friend. Yeah. And when you do that, you're stepping outside of yourself. And that in and of itself gives you perspective and helps you be less stuck which is interesting, right? So in the very process of treating yourself like you would treat someone else, you are unsticking yourself from rumination. Which is, I think, so incredibly powerful. And easy too. That's the cool thing. It's like, you don't have to get in some, meditate and get in this big state of samadhi, quiet mind or anything. It's like, oh, just what would you say to a friend you cared about? Okay, I can do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it takes practice because A, as you said, we're neurobiologically not necessarily wired for it, but also culturally and systemically and the way we've gone about living our lives for however many years we've been on this earth has not, just like anything you're good at, you got to practice it. Yeah, Yeah. it's not totally. And it it can feel pretty weird at first. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, can, but you get used to it. It's just that calling yourself bad names feels for some reason more comfortable and normal, but we, you know, we can, we can build new familiar Because it's it's familiar. familiar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, you've touched on that. I think sometimes one of the reasons we resist it is I think we've been trained or trained ourselves to think that if we're too self-compassionate, we're going to let ourselves off the hook. We're not going to be motivated. We're going to just like lull around in our, you know, Self-pity, I think we confuse it kind of with self-pity and laziness. How do how do you yeah. help people distinguish between those? Yeah, so these are the big blocks that get in the way of people being self-compassionate. You just got to look at the research. It's all completely the opposite. Yeah, You have to feel less self-pity with self-compassion because it's not poor me. It's like, oh, this is the human condition. So you take it less personally. It doesn't make you soft or weak. In fact, giving yourself support makes you strong, helps you like deal with traumatic experiences like combat or going through cancer or any difficulty. Being supportive to yourself helps a lot, makes you a lot stronger than cutting yourself down and shaming yourself. But the number one block the research shows is the motivation piece. You know, people really think that they need to be hard on themselves to make change. They think that, you know, self-compassion means softness, acceptance. Well, compassion is all about concern with the alleviation of suffering. 
So by definition, if you're doing something that causes you to suffer, like you're being too soft on yourself, you aren't reaching your goals, then it's no longer compassion. So compassion is what would be most helpful. Sometimes it does mean you need to take a break. That's the most helpful thing you can do. Sometimes you need to work harder. Sometimes you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You make a change, right? But the reason you make the change isn't because you're unacceptable as you are. The reason you make a change is because you care about yourself and you want to be happy and not suffer. The warmth, the feeling of support that you get from that attitude actually makes it easier for you to reach your goals because you aren't derailed by things like performance anxiety or fear of failure and procrastination, which are all ways to try to avoid the outcome you don't want to self-criticism. Yeah, you're your own cheerleader. You're giving yourself that pep talk. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So my latest book is called Fierce Self-Compassion. And I talk about fierce and tender self-compassion. There are two sides. Sometimes we need to accept, hey, I'm just never going to be a great skier. It's just, yeah. I butt ski. I've never been able to even stand up on a pair. This is quite true. Never been able to stand up on a pair. I really put a lot of time in it, maybe, but it's just... You know, it's like you can't do everything you want. This is just whatever reason my sense of balance isn't there. And that's okay. You know, so accepting our limitations at the same time, there are a lot of things I can do, you know, and just because I can't ski doesn't mean I'm a bad person, right? And so it's about accepting what is at the same time that we try to do our very best. It's exactly like our kids, hopefully anyway. Yeah. Hopefully we love our kids unconditionally at the same time that we want them to reach their goals and and be happy in life and hopefully try to support them, whatever they need to help them reach their goals. Same thing with ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Calling your kid's name and shaming them. Some parents do it, but it doesn't work out so well. No. Backfires. That backfires. They ended up in my therapy sessions. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Kristen, this was just an absolutely eye-opening, amazing conversation. I know our listeners on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch learned so much from you, and I'll continue to drop all the information to Fear Self-Compassion and your other book in the show notes for today's episode. And hopefully we'll have a conversation again in the future. But I'm just so honored uh, by our time, by your wisdom and your research. It's just so important to all of us. So thanks for spending this time with us today. Thank you. And thanks for the good work you do in the world. Thanks. I don't know about you, but I am so grateful for the wisdom Kristen shared with us today and for her continued commitment to researching and educating us all on the power of self-compassion. I promise to drop a link to her books in the show notes for today's episode. Trust me, you're going to want to pick them up. I want to thank Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. I also want to thank the team at Studio Pod for producing today's episode. As we close the show, I'd love to ask you a quick favor. As I mentioned, I love hearing from listeners of the show. So after this, I'm asking you to head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might just need it most. Thank you again for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my incredible guest, Dr. Kristen Neff. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.